Let's right, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of being here together as family. Thank you for ordaining messages like this one from eternity past, Father, for this group, for those even far beyond these four walls, Father, to hear in your perfect timing so that they might be or gain wisdom and be set free by it, Father. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be here this evening, that you return them to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this for believers like ourselves just such a wonderful time to rejoice in. We're so grateful, Father. We do ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, part 43, Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Sunday's message began with a good old-fashioned dose of thanksgiving. I mean, it is, tis the season. We're one week away from, you know, the United States holiday that we call Thanksgiving. Uh, in fact, last week's blog was titled, up here on the board, Concentric Circles. And in that blog, the picture I tried to paint in my writing um, was that our love and our gratitude for the Lord God is at the center of our souls. It's the center of us. It's, it's the anchor, as we'll see a little bit in a little bit. It's the center of our souls, so to speak. Uh, again, we might even use the language the writer of Hebrews used to describe this concept. Go to Hebrews 6, 13, uh, 6, 17. Hebrews 6, verse 17. So I tried to paint this picture for you of concentric circles, uh, and at the very center is our relationship with the Lord God, and that becomes the anchor of our souls. Hebrews 6.17, and that's where we find our convictions, right? Our, our resolve even. Hebrews 6.17, so Hebrews 6.17 reads, So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we're getting close to that center, right? We hold fast to the hope set before us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as, forerun as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19, we have as a, uh, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Again, the point being that our love and our gratitude for the Lord God 
is at the center of our souls, right? Up here on the board, again, is concentric circles. That was what that blog was all about, just to get us thinking that way. From the anchor of the soul, we have this assurance and hope that fills us with thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but deep down in my soul, uh, this hope, this anchor, uh, fills me with thanksgiving because I know it's there um, and it's mine to keep. And it fills me with thanksgiving and it should fill you as well. Like the concentric circles example, our gratitude emanates outwards from that center. It emanates outwards uh, to our own encouragement and our own pleasure. It's nice to, to have that attitude. It's nice to burst forth with thanksgiving uh, and also to the benefit of others because when we're grateful like that, people see God in us. And that's what we've been learning for about a month now. How do people see God in us? Well, this is how. We, we display, we put on full display our gratitude for all that he's done for us. If we had to visualize it this way, we can think about, you know, how our gratitude becomes a big part of our motivation even. Being grateful motivates you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Being grateful motivates us. We are all the more motivated to, as we noted last time, dress ourselves, put on. Is that usually that Greek word in duo? Not always, but usually that Greek word in duo. It's usually in the middle or active um, voice, which means we're fully involved. We're uh, responsible for this activity of putting on to dress ourselves. So uh, when we're grateful and we're motivated, we're all, more, we're all the more likely to dress ourselves in God's grace. We are all the more apt to put on Christ. Up here on the board, Romans 13, 14. And so from this center point, this place of gratitude, we are motivated to do as Romans 13, 14 states, but put on, and there's that Greek word, and duo. In this case, it's the aorist imperative Middle, it means you put him on at salvation and you keep on putting him on as a command to your own benefit. To your own benefit. It's something we do. We put him on for the very first time at salvation and then forevermore. As a result of being saved, forevermore. We have a part in putting him on, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ to our own benefit. That's the middle voice. So again, put on and duo the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the imperative means that all of that is a command. So as you mature in the faith, you begin to realize that putting on in the imperative mood, again, which denotes a command, in the imperative mood is actually a blessing. It's not something to moan or groan about. To put them on, to have a command on you, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not, it's nothing to moan and groan about. It's actually a blessing. You mean I get to wear, I get to wear his clothes that he gave me. I get to don myself so that I look, maybe even act like Christ. Yeah, well, I consider that a blessing. That's a privilege if you want to get right down to it. And for that, again, we ought to be grateful. 
Now, to take that a little further, when you love someone the way you do Jesus, or the way you ought to anyways, you want to obey His commandments. You start thinking outside of your own selfish desires. You say, what's good for Him? What's good for His good name? I want to be pleasing to Him. I want to obey His commandments. You want to do them, not just hear and delude yourself, a la you know, James 1.21. You want to do them because it is pleasing to Him. Go to 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. You want to do His commandments because it's pleasing to Him. You're motivated. You love this person who died for you who's responsible for you being plucked out of the lake of fire as your destiny. You love him for it. So you want to, you're motivated to be pleasing to him. 1 John 5, 3, and from that vantage point, if you think that way, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And you know what? His commandments are not burdensome. When you have this love, when you're in the sphere of love, you realize that obeying His commandments means just to orient, to align to Him, and you're blessed for it. So the fact that He gives you commandments, you become more grateful for them. You'd actually rather have the commandments than not have them. So when you start looking and reading, at your, reading your Bible, you, you, know, you get hungry because you say, anytime I take in this, I'm blessed. Anytime I get more directives or directions or commandments from the Bible, I'm blessed. And for that, I'm grateful. Again, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So I hope you see how this all fits together. It's beautiful. There's no other word for it, really. Uh, it's beautiful. All of this fits together, and it's a beautiful thing. And it takes us a while. If, you, if you're saying, I don't see it, that's okay. It takes a while to get there. You might even call it more of a maturity principle. You might be saying, I don't know, I still feel a little adolescent about these commands. I buck them, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do them. I don't really X, Y, Z. And so in that sense, I guess it is maybe a bit of a maturity principle. Um, so if you're not getting it yet, Uh, Go easy on yourself. Putting on Christ is the great daily blessing that you have. We just saw that it's a command. But it's also a daily blessing. And what a blessing it is to be able to get out of bed faithfully and be able to put on Jesus Christ is a daily blessing, is a privilege, actually. It's not burdensome to clothe yourselves in righteousness. That's not a burden at all. It's a blessing. That's the whole point. In fact, with a little understanding, you are motivated to do it. You're motivated. Up here on the board, Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Think about that concentric circle. From the very core of who you are, You greatly rejoice in the Lord. Your soul shall exult in God. He says, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, putting on Christ this way, being adorned this way, uh, even if it's a command, which it is, it's not a chore at all. It's an amazing privilege. When you think about the commands of God, he, does, he gives us these commands to bring glory to Him. And so if, if you have proper motivation, you want to do that thing. You're pulled towards it. Remember the push versus pull model. You're pulled to do that thing. And when you're pulled to do that thing, you don't consider it a chore at all. You consider it a privilege. It's like when you really want to do something nice for someone. You don't go, ah, maybe you do. <laughs> maybe you do. You know, maybe, you know, your 80-year-old mom calls you up and she's like, can you help me with this thing? Like, ah. Or you can say, you know what, it's my privilege. I want to help my 80-year-old uh, mom, right, so she doesn't climb up on the roof like a wild woman or something and fall off and break a hip. You don't get it, right? You, you, you consider it a privilege to help in time of need. That's the point. Um, those are two different perspectives. Same circumstances, just two different perspectives. And one, obviously, you know, the one where you're willing to help. One, you're blessed for it. The whole episode, throughout the whole ordeal, you're blessed. You're washed over with blessing. That's the whole idea. It's not a burden. As soon as you say, uh, guess what? For the whole hour it takes you to do that thing, uh, you're not blessed. You're cursed with your own misery. Because you got the wrong attitude about it, the wrong perspective. To our previous verse up here on the board, Romans 13, 14, but put on in duo, aorist imperative middle, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Its desires, uh, I want to live for me. I don't want to help nobody. I don't even want to help Jesus. I only want to live for me. That's the flesh's desires. The command is to put on Christ and put off the flesh, leave no provision for the flesh. Now, as we noted on Sunday, to put on Christ means to put on his character even. Go to Colossians 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, 12. To put on Christ means a lot of things, actually, if we're honest. <clears throat> Colossians 3, verse 12. All of these things, of course, are attributes of our Lord and Savior. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, who had a more compassionate heart than Jesus? No one. Kindness. Who was kinder than him? No one. Who was more humble? No one. You get the point. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's just one way of saying, come to the sphere of love 
and all this stuff will work out. Let the peace, while you're there, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And what? Be thankful. What an unbelievable privilege it is. Just Can you just step back for a moment, honestly? Even if you had a craptastic day today. Just step back and go, you know what? You mean I've been invited into the sphere of love? I've been, I can experience Christ's love right now? Yeah. So what do you not have to be thankful for? Shouldn't you be like uber grateful, uber thankful? Do you need a holiday? No. No. If you just change your perspective, remember same circumstance, just different perspective. Just change your perspective. You might be shocked. Once you recognize how much you have to be grateful for, instead of doing the American way, which is what don't I have and what carrot can I chase today, and therefore how can I make myself miserable some more today, why don't you step back and, get, and say, look at how much I have just in Christ Jesus. Look at, we've all agreed uh, a multitude of times that the only thing that matters is this, I mean, that's a, that should be enough gratitude forever. End of story. You could live over there in the corner of this parking lot in a hovel, and that should be sufficient just knowing that he saved you, that you don't have to spend eternity. So you have to spend a few years in a hovel. How's that compared to eternity in hell, where you deserved to go? You understand? Like, we should be uber grateful. And we don't need a holiday to do it. We're such, can I get an amen on this? We're such brats. It's unbelievable. What happens to us? We're so grateful for a moment, for a time, for a season. And then once, you know, once our pathetic little lives get the best of us, we're moaning and groaning like we were never saved. It's unbelievable. We have so much to be grateful for. Just perspective. So much to be grateful for, verse 16. Now look, look. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Did I not just preach it for about two minutes straight? Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Let that dwell in you richly. When you all were like, yep, yep, I'm a brat. I, I just need to change it. Let that dwell in you richly. Let it stay there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I just did that. Singing psalms, I'm not going to sing for you though. And hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, it covers everything in other words, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In other words, spend your entire day in an estate of gratitude. So hopefully you see the source of our Thanksgiving. So this Thanksgiving holiday, may we align our thinking with the Bible. May we align our thinking with the Bible. May our gratitude not be for the turkey dinner, strictly speaking. You can be grateful but for the provider himself. 
not just for the dinner. I can't wait. I don't know about you, but not just, <laughs> not just for the dinner, but for the provider. May we spread our, our gratitudes outwards like concentric circles from the very core, which is Christ. And as we put him on, may we understand what a privilege and a blessing it is to be able to do so. It's a blessing. You're like, oh, it's a command. Yeah, it's a blessing, though. It's a blessing to be given those kinds of commands. Otherwise, you'd be a, a, a ship without a rudder. So just reflect on this. And this goes back to some of our previous messages. Is there work, quote unquote, is there work? I shouldn't even put it in quotes because there is work. But is there work involved in putting him on? Sure. Sure. At the most primitive level of our being, we still have the daily battle of fighting off the persistent desires of the flesh. We just read that in Scripture. Put him on, leave the fleshly desires behind. That's a daily battle. I don't know about you, but that's a battle that I fight daily. And it's not like little things like, oh, put, get your hand out of the cookie jar, you know, because you've got high cholesterol, so I don't know. It's not little things. I mean, these are big things, right? These are big things, like, you know, bad thoughts. And I'm like, how do you have those thoughts, man? How do you persist in that thinking? It's unbelievable because it's a fight. We're, we're in a lifelong battle with a flesh that could care less about Jesus Christ, about pleasing our Lord, the one who saved us. So that battle, if you read Romans 7, right, that battle is a job in of itself. It's, a, it's, it's like a wrestling match daily. You're, it's, it's work. It's a battle. It's work. It's mentally challenging at times. I mean, that's something we are personally involved with daily. And I think you'll agree it's a struggle. And the struggle's real. So, I don't know. Any struggle involves sort of a wrestling match, right? I mean, anytime you're struggling with something internally, externally, it's you're wrangling with it, you're wrestling with it, you're trying to not be overcome, not be pinned on the mat by it. Tashuka, sin, sin nature is always trying to pin you. And it's a struggle. And it's daily. And that should sound familiar. On Sunday, the Spirit had us go all the way back to another blog I wrote in the summer of 2019 up here on the board, Grace, Works, and Indifference. And that was the one with the well and the $10 million gift, etc. Different people had to work different amounts to get there, but the, the value of the gift was the same. The point of the blog was simple. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. Nowhere does it say that grace is easy. The gift that God offers up, many times he says, come and get it. You say, oh, I got to get out of bed? Come and get it. Oh, I got to go help my 80-year-old mother? Come and get it. You want the blessing. Jesus Christ is more blessed to give than to receive. Did he not? Then go give your time and your energy. That's the whole point. Uh, well, then stay in bed and, you know, suffer. 
suffer in your own self-deserved misery. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that grace is easy. Regarding the greatest gift of all, Jesus said this up here on the board, Luke 13, 24, agonizomai, right? You can actually see the word agonize in there. <laughs> Strive, agonize, struggle, wrestle, combat, contend as an athlete to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter in, will not be able. Seek how? The wrong way. Unwilling to wrestle off the flesh. You know, the, when, you, when you snap out of it and you say, you know what? I'm going to give up my flesh's hold on me. And I, and I believe in Jesus Christ and I'm going to repent and receive saving faith, etc. and be saved. The flesh doesn't have a... The flesh doesn't like that. That's why some of you have relatives that you bring right up to the door. Some of them have been here even, heard the truth, heard the gospel, and they've, they're wrestled away from it. Read Matthew 13, you know, the parable of the sower. They're wrestled away from salvation by their lives. By their lives. So it's a struggle. Um, and that's why Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The writer of Hebrews wrote about the labor to put on Christ daily, which is tantamount to saying this up here on the board, Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive, this is spurazzo, earnestly, diligently bent upon, to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So this is something we do, even daily. We strive. If we want to put on Christ, we must strive for it. That's the point. Is the gift of the garment free? Yeah, that's what we call grace. But he's saying, you, active voice or middle voice, you have to put it on. You have to choose to do that thing. You have to wrestle off your own flesh. Do you understand? He says, I'll give you the grace gift of putting me on every morning. but You have to make the decision. And you have to strive for it. That's the point. That's our part in it. We have to want it. We have to strive for it. We do that in humility, of course. So if we want to put on Christ, we must strive for it. And that's not a legalistic statement. Don't say, oh, is he getting religious? No, not at all. You're not doing this to impress your neighbor. You're doing this to follow the commands in the Bible. As Hebrews 4.11 points out, we are actually striving to enter his rest. I mean, and frankly, to go back to our opening point, who doesn't want Christ's rest? Who doesn't want his rest? Who doesn't want to be in the middle of a storm at sea and be able to sleep it off in the bow of the ship? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that kind of peace in their life? Well, the Bible tells us if you want it, you have to go for it. You know that old saying? Just, you know, go for it then, up here on the board. Humility is aggressive. Then be aggressive about it. Go for it. Don't sit back and be lazy. 
If he says, you know what, I can, I'm going to bless your socks off if you give. If you go help your mom. If you go help your dad. If you go help your kid. If you go help, what, I don't know what it is. You know what I'm saying, right? Like James said, you know, true religion is this. The one who helps the widows and the orphans and such. That's true religion. That's what it means to be aggressive. It means to actually get off your duff in humility and go do something that brings glory to God. That is not a religious statement because you're not doing it to be noticed. You're doing it because you're motivated by love and gratitude to be pleasing to Him because you're going to advance the kingdom when you do those things. We don't, we're not called to be sit-stillers. Humility is aggressive. If you want the blessings, you've got to wrestle your days away from the influences of your own awful flesh. And that's a daily struggle. The struggle, and therefore the work that goes into winning, is real. Which is why the Bible says strive. Which is why we are given commands to guide us to the right end of the struggle. That's why you, you'll see people that say, oh, I'm a Christian. I hear this more and more from, all, from many of you because you're growing up and maturing. People are struggling. They say, I'm a Christian. And there is apparently these huge battles. And they're almost boasting about it. But they're in the wrong ball field. You got, they're, fighting, they're fighting flesh for flesh. Their eyes aren't even educated. They don't have the Word of God because they don't read their Bibles even. And so they're fighting these wars and they're, they're claiming victories and it's just victory of flesh over flesh. Remember that? Take me out to the ball game. They're in the wrong ballpark. There are winners and losers in this ballpark, but they're all losers. And I don't mean that in a colloquial way. You know what I mean, right? They're, all, they're in the wrong ballpark. They're fighting flesh against flesh. And they claim victory, and, and, and the Word of God's like, that's not a victory. You just like were wrangling with yourself over stupid stuff. Come over here. Come in this ballpark where you actually understand good versus evil, light versus darkness, truth versus lies. Hmm. So commands are that thing that give us the direction that we need, the way to blessing, the way to the right ballpark, so that we're not just, you know, uh, fighting and doing stuff religiously for the sake of doing them to try to, I don't know, win. That's where religion comes in. When we are given commands so that ultimately through obedience, or we are given commands ultimately so that we bring glory to God. For example, go to 1 Peter 5, 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. And I hear that a lot from people lately. You know, they have friends, and their friends are like, oh, I'm struggling, and I'm suffering for Jesus. And it's like, are you, though? It sounds like you have some conception of what you think you should have in Jesus Christ, which isn't even real, and you're struggling to achieve that objective, which you manufactured because you don't read your Bible. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothe yourselves, another command. With what? With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Up here on the board, this is ekom bu'umai. Clothe yourselves, it means to put on oneself as a garment, refers to the white scarf or apron of slaves, which was fastened to the girdle of the vest. Gird yourselves with humility as your servile garb. For example, by putting on humility, show your subjection one to another. This Greek word, again, is in the middle imperative, which means it's a command to do something where we are personally involved. In other words, we clothe ourselves. Okay? Again, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. On Sunday, we got this as well up here on the board. Getting dressed. It's a command. Getting dressed. To reject God's grace is to choose to clothe yourself in self-righteousness. He gives you a grace gift called the garments. Put it on. Put him on. He is the garment. Put on Jesus Christ. To reject that is to clothe yourself in self-righteousness. The result is striving outside of God's economy to your own exhaustion. I just described that in a different way. God's economy is in this baseball field. If you clothe yourself, you're in this baseball field. And you're exhausted at the end of the day. And you didn't win anything. There's no blessing there, just exhaustion. So to our previous point, again, getting dressed, humility is aggressive. I want to put on these garments. I want them. Not just because there's blessings, but knowing that it's pleasing to my Lord, who I'm ultra, ultra, uh, ultimately grateful for. What is it? that humility ultimately seeks, though. If it's aggressive, humility is aggressive. I want something. I want grace. I want the gift. Lord, you want to give me something for free? Yes, I want to give you something for free. I want it. Where can I find it? Where is it? It's like the parable of the person, you know, finds the pearl in the field, right? Where They were digging, obviously. Where is it? Where do I find this grace? And you eagerly strive for it. You, you're aggressive to find that grace. We saw that in Hebrews uh, last time, right? Go boldly to the throne of grace. Confidently. Uh, aggressively. With grace, we are able to function in God's economy. Up here on the board. To go with that theme for a moment. In God's economy, grace is how we, you know, do business. All of a sudden, a real beautiful thing starts happening. So we find ourselves in God's economy. We begin to orient. Some would call it grace orientation, right? You begin to become grace-oriented. You begin to have a lot of currency in God's economy. And you start, uh, it starts, uh, what is it, Lombano, I think. It overflows in the Greek. It overflows. You start having so much grace poured out into your lap, it overflows into the laps of others. And all of a sudden, a churn starts happening. Overflow. You think of cups, you know, like a cup would overflow, and then this one overflows to the next, and the next, and the next. In God's economy, grace goes round and round. 
That's the beautiful thing. Nobody's hoarding it. Nobody's just trying to keep it to themselves. No one's saying, oh, look what I have, right? Because that would be religion. Exit. <laughs> You're kicked out. <laughs> Experientially. No. In God's economy, a perfectly functioning economy is where grace just flows. And as it flows, remember that I used, I think I used the old um, gristmill analogy, right? As it flows through you, certain things happen in you, even though the water goes through and it goes right along, but it does work in you. That's the beauty of, of grace, right? It goes round and round. God gives a person grace, and that person passes it on to us. And after we receive it, we pass it along to the next person, and so on and so forth. When God uses us to pass along grace like this, we are called instruments or implements in the English Standard Version of righteousness up here on the board. Uh, actually, this would be an amplified classic calls it implements. Romans 6.13, Do not continue offering or yielding your bodily members and faculties to sin as instruments or tools of wickedness. But offer and yield yourselves to God as though you have been raised from the dead to perpetual life and your bodily members and faculties to God, presenting them as implements of righteousness. And so as this economy goes and we're rightly oriented, we're grace oriented, we're doing business with grace, we become instruments of righteousness. We bring glory to God because we are part of the machinery that is God's economy. And God is glorified. And that's all an economy is, after all. It's currency flowing from one person to the next. We choose to remain in this economy for as long as our faith holds up. You ask yourself, well, how, do I eject, how am I ejected? Well, you lose faith. You're attracted to some other form of currency, creature credit. You think you can get more out of a, a little bit of creature credit, let's say, maybe a, a, a component or a chit or a, a unit of currency and creature credit is somehow more valuable than a unit of currency in grace. And so you start merchandising outside of God's economy, which is what it means to merchandise or trade in Satan's economy. You stop you know, you got your right hands full of grace tokens and your left, your left, I mean, your right pockets full of grace tokens, your left pockets full of, of creature credit tokens. Some of you are like, yeah, that's me right now. I come to church and I pull out my grace ones. As soon as I step off the threshold, I go, look at that, look at here. I've got some creature credit. I've got some street credit. I've got some chits that I can, spe uh, that I can spend out there in the world. And so you merchandise out there. God says, uh-uh, that the blessings are not there. So anyways, we choose to remain in this economy for as long as our faith holds up. We get shaken up from time to time. But the beautiful thing about abiding in this economy is that God provides us with evidence of our faith up here on the board. Fruit, a.k.a. fruit. If we have, if we... Uh, well, let me read it. The Bible tells us that fruit is the evidence of our faith. If we have faith, then we bear fruit. That's the point. If you have faith and you're abiding in God's economy, 
you will bear fruit. Take fruit of the Spirit. When you're in this economy and things are going the way out, you do have love. You do have peace. You do have patience. You do have kindness. You do have faithfulness. You do have self-control, right? You know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You do have the fruit of the Spirit in this economy. So the beautiful thing is God gives us indicators. He says, you know what? You'll know when you're abiding in my economy because you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you know. That's why the person I was describing before who's fighting that battle and the wrong thing, and they say, oh, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. Why are you so miserable then? Why do you have no peace? Why, why is it that you can't sleep at night like ever? Why do you have no love for others? Or why do you not have any love even for yourself? Why do you have the patience of a, of a gnat? Do you know what I'm saying? Why are you never kind? Why do you have this much self-control? That's the point. He gives us fruit to look for in ourselves. Do I really have peace? Maybe I'm missing the point then. Maybe I am in the wrong ball field. Maybe I'm struggling. Or, man, I've got more peace than I've ever had. Why? You're picking up some grace. Your pocket's full of grace. You're in the economy. Things are going the way they're supposed to go. Some of you, that makes you uncomfortable because you, your, normal, your norm is dysfunction junction. So it, it takes a little while for you to get away from dysfunction junction to God's economy. And when things are going really smooth, you, you need to go... Right? This is way too smooth for comfort. I've got to blow something up right now. Why are you all laughing? It's true, right? It's unbelievable the stuff we do. This is way, way too quiet in here. Right? Like the old member of TNT, the Acme Company with the Roadrunner. That's you. Got to blow something up. This is getting way too quiet. Way too tame. Because we're sick. Anyways, I digress. The Bible tells us that fruit is the evidence of our faith, James 2, 14 to 20. A perfect example of this fruit is when we bear it in our marriages and in our families. And so that's been, we're coming back now to Proverbs 17. A perfect example of this fruit is when we bear it in our marriages and our families. Now, please don't be condemned. If you failed in this area, it's behind you. There's nothing you can do about it. You can only deal with today. You have today. Just, it is what it is, right? But this is nonetheless a perfect example for us. It's fruit for us, okay? And so the spirits had us focused on uh, the divine institutions of marriage and family. So these two divinely ordained institutions are hot spots, if you will, for fruit bearing. If you read your Bible, you realize that marriage and family come up a lot in the Bible. And so they're, you know, for in layman's terms, hot spots. They're talked about a lot in the Bible. Um, God has put both of them on full display for the world to see. Why? Because when partakers of them function by grace through faith, God is glorified. By grace through faith, God is glorified glorified. So, based on our primary course of study, we've been focusing on family. We're going to leave 
marriage for some other day. Not that marriage isn't family. Not that if you have, it's just you and your spouse, that's totally a family. But we're speaking a little bit more about generational families, which implies children as well. Here's the recurring principle in our studies up here on the board. Divine institutions. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. He also chose to make us in his own image. Interesting. So it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, and we do call him father, we do call him daddy, since family is a big deal to God, our Lord is his son. Since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. It should be. And that's how we should think about it. It's a big, big deal. All right, so we've got to go back to our primary passage where all of this started. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 6. And for the record, I've never met any... What's that old... I love that saying. If you've ever met a normal family, you just don't know them well enough. You just don't know them that well. Do you know again? You ever heard that? Oh, it's, it's awesome. Remember, this is the divine standard. I've never met any family that's ever met it. Not to the degree where it's laid out in perfection. We're all slightly goofy. Slightly flawed. Just a little bit. <laughs> and when you have a bunch of people together in the same house, there's a multipl multiplicative, you know, is that the right word? Multiplicative effect. See how you're laughing at me right now? That's what I'm talking about. If we lived together, we'd have a problem. That's the right word, isn't it? Multiplicative? Anybody? Nobody. Moving right along. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children are their fathers. I even drew this out for you. If you carry it out generation to generation, it's all like, you know, boom, locked in. All threaded together. Here's where we ended on Sunday, up here on the board. God loves families. God loves godly families, I should say. The Spirit had us ask ourselves, in closing on Sunday, is my family godly? Is my family godly? Only you have an insight into that. I mean, only you can answer that, I suppose. Um, you might be tempted to answer immediately, oh, yes, of course. My God is family. Oh, my, fam my God is family. My family, oh, that's bad, because that exists. Mm-hmm. Anyways, of course my family is godly. Of course. No. Oh, of course. My God, look at me. Look, at, look how good we look on Sundays when we get dressed up and go to the church. Of course. Of course. But here's what the Bible has to say about divine institutions. Go to uh, Psalm 127, verse 1. Psalm 127, verse 1. You can't be that flippant about it. You can't just say, oh, of course. Because God has something to say about that. We do know that God loves godly families, though. And he puts a premium on it. He says there's blessings in it. Psalm 127, verse 1. However... Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives, uh, he gives to his beloved sleep. Up here on the board, alternatives to God's will. Unless God builds the house, watches over the city, or provides you with work, it is done in vain. We literally just read that. When something's done in vain, we're exhausted. It's not a blessing. And that's, allude, I alluded to that earlier. Someone who's fighting, you know, fighting to, to build something or to watch something or to work for something in their own power. In other words, the Lord's not behind it. You refused the grace gift that he gave you. Maybe he gave you a, a hovel in the corner of a parking lot. But you said, no, I want a giant house on a hill. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reject God's grace and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work my behind off trying to build a house on a hill. And you get there and it doesn't satisfy you. Or even worse, you know, well, I got to get married by the time I'm 30. I got to have two kids by the time I'm 35. And I got to have a house with a picket fence by the time I'm 37 or something. I don't know, whatever. People plan, right? If the Lord's not behind any of that, guess what? You're going to suffer for it. You're going to be exhausted as a result of all that laboring outside of his grace. It continues, though. Solomon continues sharing his wisdom in this passage, which is where he, we see a reference to families, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Up here on the board, again, God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family, he also chose to make us in his own image, so it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. It brings us uh, peace, love, happiness, contentment, all these things. As the spirits pointed out in the past, the tie that binds families together is this. Love. Love. If we're Still yet to complete, uh, actually, excuse me, we're still yet to complete our survey of this. Remember, uh, the last, what, two or three messages, um, we came upon this survey of love, and we haven't finished it yet. So let's do that now. I want to review real quick. This is the tie that binds, though. And so on that note, let's see what the Bible has to say about love. So far, we've noted the following, though. Um, the first verse, 1 Peter 1, 22 up here on the board, direct, uh, uh, speaks directly to the flow of grace in God's economy, for grace is the expression of love. 1 Peter 1.22 reads, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We also looked at the pervasiveness of love up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 16.14 let all that you do, all that you do, be done in love. That's the pervasiveness of love. And you can go ahead and think about families. Think about the family dynamic. I mean, some of you are like, yep, I'm going to have to in about one week. And Thanksgiving, <laughs> I'm going to be saying this, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all I do be done in love. Right? Because I want to strangle this person, let's just say. No? 
1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. When uh, we then considered the love a shepherd has for a sheep up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 2, 4, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And so there's also the familial love. Paul, used to, uh, Paul said, I'm like a father to you. A shepherd is, does have that kind of role in your life. It's a fatherly type role, spiritual fatherly type role. And so that love develops. Uh, a shepherd, I've told you that a bazillion times, right? I love you all. And that's a, that's a fact. Um, there's a certain love that God blesses pastors with. Thank God, because I would strangle you. Right? <laughs> Seriously. But he's just saying this love is the tie that binds. Right? It binds me to you. The last verse we looked at had to do with marriage up, up here on the board. Ephesians 5.33. We're almost out of time. However, let... Uh, each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that re she respects her husband. And so love is in the marriage. And again, if you just have, if it's just the two of you, then that's your family. But love is there. Love is the tie that binds uh, marriages and families together and it brings glory to God. That's as far as we got with the tie that binds us together, which is namely love. So let's try and um, let's finish this brief survey I can go a little bit further tonight with you uh, in Holy Scripture. Love also protects us, according to the Bible. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Love also protects us, according to the Bible. According to the Bible. And you know that to be true because here's a practical example that, you know, some of you probably have dealt with even recently. If you didn't have love, and let's just say someone shot an arrow at you, a.k.a. attacked you. Actually, this week's blog is on attacks. Um, if you didn't have love, you would be unprotected. The love that you have actually protects your soul from being wounded. From being, you know, I'm not going to say fatally, but you know what I'm saying, or mortally, but deeply wounded. You're able to love that person because you understand or you act the way or you think the way Jesus did or does. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The breastplate of faith and love. And so love actually protects us. Love actually protects us. Let's do one more and then I'll close because uh, I've got a, still a list to go. Love overcomes obstacles according to the Bible. Go to 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy 4.12. Love overcomes obstacles. Again, we're just developing. What is this tie that binds marriages and families together? What is the tie that binds us together? Right? What gives generational blessings? Love is the thing. 1 Timothy 4.12, and then I'll close. Let no one despise you for your youth. He's speaking to Timothy here. 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, 
in love, in faith, in purity. So in other words, you're able to overcome obstacles according to the Bible. Set an example, he tells Timothy, uh, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Okay, let's end now. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for reminding us of what it is to love, to abide in the sphere that is you, for you are love. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we learn back to the privacy of our own souls, our homes, our marriages, our families. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.